This morning we're back in the book of Esther together, and you can see that on page 8 of your bulletin. In this, uh, this mysterious story towards the end of the Old Testament about this young Jewish woman who lived in Persia during the exile of the Jews, about 500 years or so before the birth of Christ. And Esther, this young woman, never lived in or even visited Jerusalem, the homeland of her people. And yet, she plays a providential role in God fulfilling His covenant promises. Her cousin Mordecai, we've met already, a civic official in the Persian court, had raised her because she was an orphan, and under certain extraordinary circumstances, which we've already seen, humorous in many odd sorts of ways, she's now become the queen to the Persian king Xerxes. And here in chapter 3, we meet the villain of the entire story. And here in these few verses, we see two conspiracies hatched. One of them is a footing for providence, and the other one is fodder for our doubts. Esther chapter 2, beginning in verse 19. When the virgins were gathered together a second time, Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate. Esther had not made known her family background or her nationality as Mordecai had commanded her, for Esther obeyed Mordecai just as when she was brought up by him. In those days, as Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, Bigthon and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs who guarded the doorway, became angry and conspired to assassinate King Xerxes. And this came to the knowledge of Mordecai, and he told it to Queen Esther, and Esther told the king, In the name of Mordecai. When the affair was investigated and found to be so, the men were both hanged on the gallows, and it was recorded in the book of the Chronicles in the presence of the king. After these things, King Xerxes promoted Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, and advanced him and set his throne above all the officials who were with him. And all the king's servants who were at the king's gate bowed down and paid homage to Haman. For the king had commanded so concerning him. But Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage. Then the king's servants who were at the king's gate said to Mordecai, Why do you transgress the king's command? And when they spoke to him day after day and he would not listen to them, they told Haman in order to see whether Mordecai's words would stand, for he had told them that he was a Jew. And when Haman saw that Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage to him, Haman was filled with fury, but he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone, for they had made known to him the people of Mordecai. Instead, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews, the people of Mordecai, throughout the whole kingdom of Xerxes. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Father, we pray again that you would grant to us your spirit so that we might see And understand your good news in this word of yours, this odd little history towards the end of our Old Testaments. We pray, Father, that you would make this not only clear to us, but make it real to us, that we might believe your faithfulness and your good news to us, even this morning, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. A few evenings ago, you will know that the third and mercifully, I think and hope, last presidential debate took place and broadcast on television, right? Mercifully, maybe I speak for you in that. 
And it seems to me that the, the polarizing civic conversation and tension seems to rise after each debate. And so maybe it's good that there not be another one. I read an article that came to my attention this past week, the day after the debate, written by a Christian author reflecting on the whole matter at hand. And he was suggesting something intriguing, I thought, that Christians ought to maybe take into account. He suggested that that it could be that these two major party candidates that stand before us and on the ballot are, in a sense, God giving a mirror to this country. And in a sense saying to this country, take a look and see what you see. What is it after all that you see when you look into a mirror? You see yourself. And could it be that that's what God has done? That this is what you, God says, as a country have become. The the lies, the corruption, the selfishness, the unbridled ambition, the shameless sexual immorality, the exploitation of the weak, and the pandering to the powerful. All accusations that have been made and cast in both directions from either side of the aisle at these would-be world leaders. And it's odd, isn't it, that the primary point of conversation in the whole matter is the question of fitness for office. What, what election do you remember that that was the primary concern among the electorate, it seems that that's the case, and so all these accusations have been made, and I guess I would say with much justification on both sides of the aisle. But the author then suggested something much more self-reflective for us to consider. He said, you know, if these vile things actually do describe the candidates that stand before us, then how much more must these same things describe the country of people who have placed these two as representative leaders before us? How much more do these things describe the hearts of the individuals that make up the place in which we live? Indeed, our own hearts in so many ways. And so Christians might ask this question, given the circumstances. Will God still be faithful? Will God still be faithful to this country as it is and lend favor in so many ways as He surely has in His kindness through the years? Will God still do such things? Will He still be faithful? But we have to recognize that the obligation of God's faithfulness is not to any one country. It's not to any particular form of government, and it's not even to any certain cultural preference that we might have. God will still be faithful. The answer is a resounding yes. He will still be faithful to keep His promise. To keep His promise given to Abraham ages and ages ago, you stated some of this in our liturgy earlier, God said to him, I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. And through you, all the peoples, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. That's God's covenant promise to heal the world. It's covenantal because it comes through one family. It comes through 
Abraham and the Israelites, his family who descended from him, that family whose line the Old Testament is so meticulously careful to trace out for us. And it's covenantal because God has obligated himself to be faithful to heal his world. Like Americans perplexed about an election, Israelites at this time, reading the account of Esther and the generations that followed its happening, must have wondered as they read this story, as they did in the generations before Jesus was born, they must have wondered, will God still be faithful? I mean, after all, he had promised us to Abraham. He had preserved us through Joseph in Egypt. He had delivered us out of Egypt by the hand of Moses. He had waited patiently on us through the time of the judges. He had provided generously for us with King David. But through hundreds of years of our own lies and corruption and selfishness and ambition and immorality and exploitation, these things have now led us to this. Exile in a foreign land where a government official is plotting our demise. And so, will God still be faithful? The answer, of course, is yes. Yes, He'll be faithful to His promise. And He'll do it despite an ancient threat. Now, just like Christians today, Israelites of old, of exile times, I think were easily distracted, I'm sure, by the immediate problems that they saw so quickly around them, and so they often failed to see the bigger picture that was so important. Christians in our age, you know, the things that we get so easily worried about, we think about, you know, will the neighborhood kids be a negative influence on my kids? Or will that homeless guy on the corner tap on the window of my car and ask me to roll it down so he can talk to me? Or will the media ever have a favor for Christian values someday. You know, those are the kinds of things that that worry us and get us rankled up and concerned. And, you know, I guess they're important sorts of things, but they're not the big picture. Israelites of the exile would have done similar sorts of things, I suspect. They would have been concerned about how to live among the heathen Babylonians and Persians, having been exiled to their country. They would have been concerned about, would life maybe be better if we were back in Jerusalem where our grandparents lived? They would have been concerned about those sorts of important details, but distracting details at the same time because there's a much bigger picture to be concerned about. I want to skip over the first paragraph here for a moment about Mordecai and go straight to the second paragraph because Haman's introduction is so important here. Verse 1, in the middle of the reading there, after these things, King Xerxes promoted Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, and advanced him and set his throne above all the officials who were with him. Haman, we've not met until now, but we're told he is an Agagite. To you and me, that doesn't necessarily mean anything. We talked about it a couple of weeks ago in brief, I think. But he was an Agagite. That simply means he's a descendant of someone named Agag. Now, there's only one Agag in the Old Testament that 
matters, and that's a man who was long, long dead before Haman ever was born. And it's debated among scholars and commentators as to whether Haman himself actually could have been a bloodline descendant of that man Agag, because Agag and all of his people had been killed off in war about 500 years before this point. And so it's quite possible that that Haman was not at all a bloodline descendant of this particular man. But if that's the case, then the literary reference that the author gives to us is even more powerful. Because any Agagite was a self-proclaimed and mortal enemy of the Jews. Agag was the king of the Amalekites at the time of Israel's king Saul. Again, 500 years before Haman was born, the Amalekites had been the first people to attack the Israelites as they exited from Egypt and traveled through the wilderness. The Amalekites came after them and attacked them to destroy them. They were the first ones to do that. And it was a very hard battle. I mentioned it a couple of weeks ago. It was that, that infamous battle in which Joshua led the troops and Moses was standing on the hill with his arms raised. And as long as his arms were raised to the Lord, the Israelites were winning. And as he got tired and dropped his arms, the Israelites began to lose. And by the end of the day, the Israelites had prevailed. It was a hard battle. And at the end of the battle, the Lord declared, I will be at war against the Amalekites from generation to generation. And so these people, in a sense, took on a disgraceful symbolism in their opposition to God. Forty years later, Moses would remind the people as they entered into the promised land, he would remind them of what the Amalekites had done to them to to, to remember that this enemy is a threat and it will be always against you. And then 300 years later, King Saul himself would take on that threat, Agag being their king at that time, and that moment would be Saul's downfall. And then 500 years later, Haman, the Agagite, we're told, threatens again. Now I want to read for you the next section in chapter 3, which I didn't read a moment ago, to give you a little more, a fuller picture of of what's going on here. Chapter 3, beginning in verse 7, this is what Haman is after. In the first month, in the twelfth year of King Xerxes, Haman, having determined to kill the Jews, cast poor, that is, they cast lots before Haman, to select a day and a month. Then the lot fell on the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar. Then Haman said to King Xerxes, There's a certain people scattered and dispersed among all the provinces of your kingdom. Their laws are different from those of every other people, and they do not keep the king's laws so that it's not to the king's profit to tolerate them. That was not entirely true. They did keep the king's laws. If it please the king, he said, let it be decreed that they be destroyed, and I will pay 10,000 talents of silver into the hands of those who have charge of the king's business that they may put it into the king's treasuries. So the king took his signet ring from his hand and gave it to Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, the enemy of the Jews. And the king said to Haman, the money's given to you, the people also do with them as it seems good to you. Haman has a purge in mind. He wants to to destroy, to eliminate all the Jews, not just in Susa, but throughout the Persian Empire, which would stretch all the way to Jerusalem and beyond. He wants to purge 
his land of these people out of the hatred of his heart. And so he casts lots. He literally rolls the dice in order to pick a day on which to carry out this dastardly deed. And the lot falls to the 12th month of the year. Now it's the first month right now. This is now to happen the 12th month. So it's 11 months away that this thing is going to happen. And so Haman takes it and pitches it to King Xerxes. He casts it in the king's financial favor. And the plan was set. And once again, the ancient threat has arisen. And the big picture comes into focus. And the big picture is really simple. There is good, the creator, and his plan to redeem. And there is evil, the enemy, and his plan to destroy. It's the classic storyline, which we just can't ever seem to escape, can we? I mean, pop culture is is built on it. Every pop culture drama is built on good versus evil. It's, It's just the reality in which... We live in this world, isn't it? From Star Wars to Tarzan to Gone with the Wind. Whatever movie you watch, even if it's a love story where it doesn't seem so dramatically conflicted, yet still there's good versus evil. If there weren't, there would be no story, right? Why is that? Because it's the story of the world. It's God's story. And God loves the world. That biblical storyline arises on two different levels, actually. In a general sense, it arises in that the evil of God's enemy is out to unravel all that's good in God's world, to stir hatred and strife in the midst of families and societies, to twist the beauty of creation into the selfishness of consumption, and to crush the poor, and to elevate the powerful, and much, much more. And here's where your daily calling and vocation matters. As, as a Christian, as a human being living in this world, here's where your calling and daily vocation begins to really matter, because what you're called to do is to build what's good, to build what's true, to promote what's beautiful, and to fight against What's destructive? And if money and power come along with your work, then so be it. But your work is to bless in the name of Christ because this is God's work. One mistake, though, that Christians make often in regard to that is to assume that the Agagite, that is, the enemy, is all those people, you know, those people, out there who oppose the things that we want. But that's simply not so. Because there's a much bigger picture at work in this. In, In general, that's how the good versus evil plot works out. But in particular, it's much bigger. Because the evil of God's enemy is out to unravel the good of God's redemption altogether. He has a very focused target in mind. Haman was just a pawn. Haman didn't know what he was doing. He was just a a greedy, power-hungry political official in his day. That's all he knew. He was just a pawn in a bigger scheme. There's a much bigger enemy, an enemy that the Apostle John saw in Revelation and gave us a picture of moments ago when you heard Revelation 12 
read to you. That amazing picture that we looked at last year as we studied the book of Revelation, the picture of of the woman giving birth as John saw in his vision, that woman being God's people, Israel, the family through whom the Redeemer would come. And that dragon threatening against her, waiting to devour the child, that dragon being the enemy, capital E, of the Jews, Satan himself. That's the bigger picture that's at work here. That's the good versus evil that is happening even here in this obscure little Old Testament story towards the end of the Old Testament era. That's the big picture. And the question is, will God still be faithful? The answer is yes. He will be faithful to the promise that He made to heal the world through His Redeemer. Because the ancient threat will never prevail over the profound grace through which He's bringing it to pass. Now, one of the most major, I guess, themes of the book of Esther, it's a a curious literary piece of work, that it gives us these major themes, and, and this major theme is the reversal of fortune. It's something that you see several times in the book of Esther, and it's very prominent in this book. We've already seen how Queen Vashti, this woman of power, in Persia, because of her dignified stance against her husband's abuse, unjustly lost her position of power. And Esther, this pitiful little orphaned Jewish young woman, was raised by worldly circumstances to that position of power, a reversal of fortunes. And now, here in this passage, it's Mordecai's turn, but his turn doesn't start out so well. Verse 19, there at the beginning, at the top of the page. When the virgins were gathered together the second time, this is a flashback, it seems, back to the, the, the Persia's Got Talent contest of gathering all these young women together for the king's choice. When the virgins were gathered together for the second time, Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate. That is, he was engaged in his civic duties as an official of the Persian court. And while he was there, he learned of this plot against the king. Now, Once Esther became queen, then Mordecai informed her of this plot and we're told that the affair was investigated. It was found to be true and the men, these two bodyguards of sorts, were put to death. And the whole matter was recorded in the book of the Chronicles in the presence of the king. And that's the end of the story. Mordecai is worthy of honor. But he's about to receive condemnation. At the same time, just at this very point, when a Jew who would be reading this story in the generations to follow, at this very point when that Jew would expect to read about the coming reward for Mordecai's honor, instead they see that Haman gets promoted to become the prime minister of sorts of Persia, the second in charge, and the juxtaposition, if I can use that fancy literary word, the juxtaposition between Mordecai and Haman is obvious. The one is worthy of honor but receives condemnation. The other is worthy of condemnation but receives honor. Okay, listen, Christian, does that theme sound vaguely familiar to you? It should. It should strike a chord with you because there's the gospel. 
Mordecai uncovered a plot to destroy the king. Haman created a plot to destroy a people. Mordecai stood against evil to save another's life. Haman promoted evil to elevate his own life. Mordecai's actions command respect. Haman's life requires the king's command to get people to show him respect. Mordecai is worthy of honor, but receiving condemnation as a Jew. And Haman, worthy of condemnation, receives honor from a king. Now, imagine the Jews who, again, who put yourselves in their shoes. The Jews who were reading this account in the generations leading up to the birth of Christ. And imagine the great offense that they would have taken at this juxtaposition. But there's more, as they say on the Home Shopping Network. There's more to come here because it's only just begun in the offense. I want to read to you the last few verses of chapter 3 to show you more of the picture. Then the king's scribes, after Haman got his plan approved, the king's scribes were summoned on the 13th day of the first month. And an edict, according to all that Haman commanded, was written to the king's satraps, governors, and officials of all the peoples, to every province in its own language. It was written in the name of King Xerxes and sealed with the king's signet ring. Letters were sent by couriers to all the king's provinces with instruction to destroy, kill, and annihilate all the Jews, young and old, women and children, in one day, the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar, and to plunder their goods. A copy of the document was to be issued as a decree in every province by proclamation to all the peoples to be ready for that day. Okay, Haman hatches his plan. He rolls the dice, and then he pitches his plan to the king. The king approves it, and now on the 13th day of the first month, scribes are gathered to compose a letter, and the edict is sent out. A death sentence is delivered to the Jews throughout the empire, and the irony is so subtle to you and me as to not be noticed. But it would have absolutely screamed at the Jews who read this. Why? Because the death sentence is delivered on the 13th day of the first month of the year, the eve of Passover. For ages, the Jews had as a people gathered on the 14th day of the first month to begin their observance of the Passover, that day when the Jews remembered God's profound grace to them in Egypt, that day on which the blood of one was shed for the life of another, that day on which a spotless lamb took the place of a spot-covered sinner, that day of profound grace that introduced the idea of a reversal of fortune to the people of God so that they might have life. The worthy exchanged for the unworthy, innocent blood to save guilty lives. Now you have to imagine that throughout the land of Persia, from Susa to Jerusalem and beyond, as as Jews, as Israelites gathered to celebrate God's profound grace to them in the Passover during this particular year as they received this edict as it arrived in their towns and their places, a death 
sentence to all of them to happen 11 months from now, you have to imagine their response. That through their tears and their anguish and the the torn robes and the ashes that they must have put on their heads and the concern and fear that they had literally for their lives, that they must have begun to ask one question. Will God still be faithful to us? Will He be faithful to us? Here we are celebrating His profound grace to us in the Passover, and now we've received a death sentence in the name of the King whose land we live in. Now, at the time of that edict, I can't imagine that Mordecai, I'm just guessing, but I can't imagine that he could possibly have seen this reversal of fortune as being indicative of Jesus 500 years yet to come. But if Mordecai wrote the book of Esther, and, and many think that he very quite possibly did, maybe probably did, he would have been a good candidate for having written it. If Mordecai had written the book of Esther, then perhaps in hindsight, he had gained the foresight to see that this is exactly what Yahweh would do for the people that he loved. And it is what we must see because the gospel would not be good news without the reversal of fortune. In the year 1732, a couple of young German Christians, they were Moravian brothers, a couple of young German Christians procured an assignment to go and evangelize the slaves of the Caribbean islands. They had heard that there were many, many thousands of slaves there, and they wanted to go and take the gospel there. They procured an assignment to go and to do that. And they hatched a plan and suggested that the way that they would get there would be to sell themselves to a slave trader and ride the ship with the slaves to the Caribbean islands and live the lives of slaves and preach the gospel among them. Johann Dober and David Nietzschman were the two, and they traveled to Denmark from Germany to begin their uh, movement in this direction, this missionary direction. And there in Denmark, their plans were actually denied. It was told to them that no white man ever works as a slave. We will not allow this. And so they said, well, then we'll work as carpenters. And they made their way to the Caribbean islands and they gave themselves in order to establish the Moravian gospel mission there, which over the course of the next 50 years through the 1700s would plant churches on seven islands and see some 13,000 slaves profess faith in Christ. Now, why would these two young men be willing to actually reverse their own fortunes? Why would they do that? Because they knew one thing. God is always faithful to his own promise. And he always will be. And through his church, he will heal the world. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.